2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2 is the verse we'll be at first. Uh, how many of you remember uh, very clearly in your mind the day you got married? How many of you forget that day? Anyone here? Okay. Uh, I was going to put up a, a, a photo of my wife and I on our wedding day and I decided you know, not to embarrass myself of how, how foolish I looked, but uh, um, it's, for us it's been over 16 years, and I still remember that day. It was, a, it was a whirlwind day. We got married on January 1st, and uh, it was our anniversary, and the church we were at was a very large church. Her, her, the church she grew up in was, um, I don't know, eight 900, and so they... Uh, you know, they had a pretty busy schedule, and so when it came to a wedding, it just, you fit in wherever you could fit in, and so they came to us and said, you can do your wedding on January 1st, but you can't decorate until we're done with our um, New Year's Eve service, and so I think we got into the church at 10, around there, and so it was late that night, and then the next day, we did everything, our rehearsal, our rehearsal meal, uh, all that, all in the same day. So it was, it was a very busy day, but it was, it was just a, a wonderful time, and I can still uh, remember um, the, the events of that and even the intricacies of what happened in the wedding. Uh, my wedding was nothing like the weddings that I was just reading about. I was looking at something in preparation for this of the top five most expensive weddings in history. Number five... This one surprised me, but maybe it shouldn't have. Number five was Chelsea Clinton. She got married just, uh, I don't know, a couple years ago, and her wedding cost $5 million. That was number five. Number four is a soccer player. If you are familiar with soccer at all, you know who this is. His name is Wayne Rooney. He's from England. Uh, when Wayne Rooney and his wife got married, their wedding cost $8 million. Number three uh, was the royal couple. Prince William and Kate, they got married just a few years ago, and their wedding cost $34 million. Wow. Number two is an interesting one. I want to talk a little about this one. Vasha Mittal. She is a, um, an Indian. Um, her husband is also Indian, but he was born and raised in London. Both of them are wealthy. Her dad is a billionaire. And so her wedding was, cost $60 million. It's said that the invitations, if you, were, if you were fortunate enough to receive an invitation, all the invitations were married out, uh, mailed out excuse me, in boxes that were made of solid silver. That's what your invitation came in. The invitation included uh, your plane ticket. Wouldn't you like that? If you had a wedding and it's like, hey, here's your plane ticket, come. And uh, accommodations, um, complete accommodations at a five-star hotel. Sounds like the type of thing. It was a five-day wedding. So when we say accommodations, it was more than just one night. So uh, quite, quite uh, elaborate wedding. Um, and then number one, and this is based on, you know, adjusting to um, the inflation all that. Number one was Prince Charles and Lady Diana. And uh, adjusting to the inflation, their wedding cost uh, well over uh, $70 million. So nothing like, um, you know, my wedding, but uh, mine was much better than all of those. 
However, Scripture tells us that there is an even greater wedding coming. When we talk about the end times, we are, would, I would like to get into tonight talking about the marriage of the church. We've been talking about up to this point about uh, the rapture of the church and, and other events leading up to that point. And I want to get into then uh, what, what it takes place for us as believers. We'll talk also about what takes place after the rapture for those that aren't believers, but I really am not going to spend a lot of time on that because if you're a believer, um, really doesn't matter. So uh, we'll talk about it because I think it's, it's in Scripture and I think it's good for us to see, but it's not something that we will participate in. But uh, I want to talk about this for a few moments. The first thing I want you to talk about, and I don't have notes, um, handouts, but you can write this down if you want, is the fact of the engagement. In this present age, the church is viewed as betrothed to Christ. The betrothal period is, um, it doesn't have a definite end as far as we don't know when that is. And believers have a relationship with Christ, and it's binding just like a marriage. Notice what it says, if you will, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. It says there, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And God is speaking, and uh, it's, the idea there is the understanding that we are betrothed to Jesus. Look at another passage. Look at Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. It says in Romans chapter 7 and verse 4. It says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong, belong to another to whom uh, has been raised from the dead, nor that we may bear fruits for God. Belong to another. That's, a, that's an engagement term. Uh, it's a term uh, that uh, we would uh, use, but a little different than our engagement term is the idea of there's a definite committal. There's a binding agreement that took place uh, during an engagement. If you're looking at Ephesians, we're not going to turn there, but Ephesians 5, when it talks about the husband-wife relationship, it compares it to the relationship with Christ, and it talks about there being a marriage. And so the fact of the engagement, we see that. We're betrothed as the church to Christ. The second thing I want to notice is the time of the marriage. If you'll take your Bibles and look at Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. When does the marriage take place? When does the actual marriage take place? We're in the betrothal time. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 1 it says, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. So we're in heaven. Get this. And it goes on. It talks about what we're crying out. And then we get down to uh, verse 6. And it says, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out. And again, we're rejoicing, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. That's that point where it says, okay, here's the marriage of the Lamb. So it takes place when? Well, it tells us at the beginning of verse 19, he says, After this. 
So what is that a reference to? Well, if you were to go back and look in chapter 17 and 18, we see the, it talks about the, the Antichrist, which we'll get into. It talks about the, the beast. It talks about the, what's sometimes referred to as the great uh, prostitute. And it is a reference to the religious and political system that is in place at the time. If you look at chapter 18, it talks about uh, Babylon falling. That's not a reference to old-time Babylon. That's a reference to what was established by the Antichrist in the religious system. So after this is a reference to those things. The fall of the religious and political system during the time of the tribulation. So when does that take place? Well, then the marriage would take place near the end of the great tribulation. And that's when we see that taking place. Uh, is at the end of the great tribulation. So where is the place of the marriage? We see in chapter 19, verse 1, that I just read a few moments ago, it says, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude. Where? In heaven. Um, we see the, the reference to heaven there. Uh, I think the King James says in the heavenlies. The church is already married to Christ when we return to earth. Uh, to uh, claim, let's begin the millennial kingdom, and we'll talk about that later as well. So the place is in heaven. So just uh, briefly here, what is the order of events? Well, first of all is the rapture of the church. If you look in First Thessalonians chapter four, it talks about that that we as the church will be will be taken up. The second aspect of that, the second thing is the reception of the church. Uh, take your Bibles and look at John chapter fourteen. John chapter 14. Jesus here is speaking and he's telling his disciples not to worry. This is a passage that I turn to often when I'm doing funerals because it's a, it's a good reminder of what is to come. And he says, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, may, uh, you may be also. And he says to them that I'm going to bring you to myself, and so it's the reception of the church in heaven. It's the, uh, in, in the church being brought to heaven. Then what takes place next is uh, what's referred to as the judgment seat. Um, take your Bibles again and look at 1 Corinthians I'm going to just take a few moments. I'm not going to go into um, a lot of detail, but I just want to take a few moments and talk about what is the judgment seat. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The judgment seat is often referred to as the Bema seat. What was the Bema seat? The Bema seat was something that was known at this time. It was known in the Greek culture in the Roman days it was a tribunal location where a judge sat and the judge would sit and watch the festivities of the games. And we refer to them today as the Olympics, but it was similar to that then. But they would watch, this judge would watch the, the games from his unobstructed view. From his position, he could see if any infractions take place, uh, if something was done wrong. And that's why Paul says you're supposed to run the race in a way that is worthy. 
You're supposed to uh, follow all the rules. And so uh, they, from that position, he would watch. And if the runner won the race, he would then come forward and the judge would say either, you know, you broke a rule, you didn't do what you're supposed to, or he would say um, you receive a reward. Um, and uh, so it was run without any infractions, then they would receive a reward. And it was, it was typically a, something that was worn on their head or something around their neck. Um, was not a gold medal like it is today, but uh, believers um, will give an account in, the, in a very similar way, and that's what this judgment seat is about. Okay, believers will not be judged for their sin. Um, and if, if, if we are judged for our sin, then that means Christ's work on the cross was not sufficient. But, uh, because it's already been covered, but we will be judged for our service. We'll be judged on what we did. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It says in verse 13, Each one's work will be manifested, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If, that, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Um, and I, I can't in my mind grasp exactly what this, what this is, but as, as I imagine is, we come before God and he judges our work. He judges what we've done for him. And he takes what we've done for him, and I think it's a symbolic image here, but he takes what we have done for him and he throws it in the fire. And that which uh, stood the test of time and uh, was, was of, of good value would still survive. You know, those precious metals. But those things that were of little value burned up. You know, and I, I think it's, it's about our, our motivation. I think the judgment standard will be based on what was done for God that lasts and, and how we uh, serve God. It says there in that passage, this is not a statement of saved or unsaved. This is not a statement of uh, heaven or hell. This is a statement of you, you are a believer let, let's, let's, God says we're going to judge and judge your works. Were you doing this for me? Were they pure? Were they glorifying to my name? Um, and it says they will be burned up. And those, those that survive, yes, this was done for me. And maybe you know, there will be some Christians who, man, they just have a great amount of works that God, they did for God that, that survived. Maybe others, that's a smaller amount. And it says there that we're rewarded for what we do. And then, uh, but it's, if you notice, it says, but it's not a matter of uh, whether or not you perish or not. You will be saved. So that is the basis. And what is the result? The believers will be rewarded for their service, receiving a reward, um, or maybe feeling a sense of loss. Scripture records five uh, crowns that are given. Maybe there's more. But five crowns that were given. So just for the next few moments, let's look at those. First of all is the incorruptible crown. Look if, uh, in your Bible at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in verse 25. It says, Every athlete exercises self-control all thing, in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable uh, that is the idea, you know, an athlete runs to, uh, to receive a prize. Notice the specific emphasis on self-control there. On, on self-control. Um, if, 
I was an Olympic-level athlete. No laughing, okay? But let's just imagine for a moment that my physique is totally different than it is right now, and I am a marathon runner. That's not going to happen, but just imagine that, okay? Would I go and eat um, huge meals every single day and balloon up and gain a bunch of weight in order to run? No. I would have to learn self-control. I'd have to say, okay, maybe I want this double cheeseburger, but that's probably not the best thing. And so it relates here, and it says, just like the athlete has to exercise self-control, if we want to receive this imperishable, this incorruptible crown, then we also have to exercise self-control. And we have to control what we do. And so it seems that it's one that's striving for the prize of and living a self-controlled life. The next one, is a crown of rejoicing. Look, in, if you will, in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. In verse 19, it says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Here it's referred to as uh, the crown of boasting or the crown of rejoicing, and it's, it's the idea of, uh, of and what, is, what does Paul say is the crown in this particular passage? He says it's, it's you. What does he mean by that? He says my, my, my crown is the, the fact that I had an opportunity to lead you to Christ. And uh, I, I don't know if there's a physical crown connected with it, but he gives the idea there that a reward will be given because of souls led to Christ. And so that's the crown of rejoicing. Next one we see is the crown of righteousness. Look, if you will, at 2 Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. It says this, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The crown of righteousness. I, I believe this is the idea of one who is so anticipating the coming of Christ, living not for uh, the moment, but for eternity, that they adjust their life, expecting the return of Christ at any moment. We've talked about this through this, that one of the uh, exciting things about the rapture is preparing for it and understanding that God could come in at any moment. Are we ready? And here, Paul says that a crown of righteousness will be given to the person who so anticipates the coming of Christ that he, he alters and changes the way he lives so that he's ready for the appearing of Christ. And that's the crown that's mentioned there. The next one is the crown of life. Look at, if you will, at James chapter 1 and verse 12. James chapter 1 and verse 12. It says there, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, remind ourselves, what is James talking about at the beginning of James? 
Someone tell me. Trials. Okay, the beginning of James is all about trials. Remember he said in verse 2, count it joy when you fall into trials. And so as he goes through and he talks about these trials and, and how trials should drive us to, to God. Verse, verse 5, he talks about if you don't know how to handle these trials, ask God and He'll give you uh, the generously to handle this. And, and he goes on and talks about you know, being unstable, one who's tossed about during a trial. You know, instead of being faithful to what God wants them to do, they're unstable in their ways. And then he comes to verse 12 and he said, Now the man who's blessed is one who remains steadfast. The one who, is, who endures the trial and the temptation. Because when he stood the test of time, God will give him a crown of life. And then the last one we see is uh, the crown of glory. Look, if you will, in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. And it says in 1 Peter 5, 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, who is Peter specifically talking to in this passage? Anyone know? Okay, the church, but a certain aspect of the church. The elders. The elders. The pastors. He's talking to the pastors and exhorting them on how they should act and how they should live and how they should uh, interact with their congregation. And he says to shepherd them. And then he says, uh, when you do this, when the chief shepherd appears, he will give you this crown of glory. It's for a a shepherd, a, a leader, an elder, a pastor who has faithfully led his flock. And, and uh, I believe that's um, listed there as well. Scripture seems to indicate These are crowns that are mentioned. Now, there may be others, but these are ones that we can see here in this passage. But Scripture also seemed to indicate that these crowns are not for our own glory. Look, if you will, in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. And verse 10. Revelation 4.10 says this, The twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created." I believe that the ultimate purpose of these crowns is uh, for the exaltation of God, for the glory of God. And uh, at, at this time when God uh, judges um, in, in this way, He then gives these crowns and we say, give them back to God and say, you know, we're unworthy. You, you are worthy. We're not worthy. And we did this for your, your honor and your glory. So we see there the uh, order of events again. Just uh, review a little bit. The rapture, the reception of the church, the judgment seat, and then next is the marriage of the church bride takes place in heaven. Uh, this this, this is, goes on in heaven, and we'll talk more about that in a minute here, but I just want to go through these events. The false bride is exposed in Revelation chapter 19. Uh, it talks about 
that uh, the, after that takes place, that they glorify God, the true God. And uh, in, in the opposite of that, if you look at Revelation chapter 19 and verse 2, it says, For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute. This is the, the false uh, one world church uh, that uh, we see mentioned here. He's judged this, and they, he could be, why? Because he's corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged of her uh, blood of his servants. And so we see the false bride is exposed. The next one is the manifestation of the church. Now, think, if you will, for a moment at a wedding. Okay, um, And I've done a few weddings in the last uh, year. Okay, And the wedding ceremony goes on. And, uh, and then at the end of the wedding, typically what happens is the pastor says, now I'd like to present to you. Okay, that's when it is made manifested that this is, this is the new couple. Um, when is the church and, and uh, Christ manifested? Well, I believe that that takes place at the second advent of Christ. When Christ comes to earth, and we'll talk more about that later on in this study, but when Christ comes to earth, and with great power reveals himself, but at the same time, not only revealing himself, but revealing us. In a few minutes, we'll look at uh, how we will, Scripture says, we'll share in his glory. That when he reveals to the whole world, you know, many people who said, you know, Jesus Christ is false, and who, who believed Jesus was false, and he, he comes back to earth and he says, no, no, I am who I said I was. And here's my bride. And we accompany him at that moment. And then what follows that is the marriage feast. And the marriage feast is a celebration on earth during the millennial kingdom. You talk about a, 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 a great wedding ceremony. I mean, that, that's nothing. Uh, that uh, is way greater than spending $60 million on a wedding. You know, a million, a million uh, excuse me, a thousand years of a feast to glorify God and to celebrate the union of Christ with his church. And so that is some of the order events. Next thing I want to notice is the preparation of the marriage. Now, if you have been married, then you understand the amount of preparation that is involved. Okay? Uh, any, any of you in here, honesty time, any of you in here were, got a little stressed when you were preparing for your wedding? Okay, we have a couple honest people. Thank you. Um, and uh, I, I say that because I've been around enough brides to see the stress that takes place. But uh, uh, and preparation, what's going on? Well, I, you know, I got to buy the dress. I got to decide this. I got to decide that. I got to pick the flowers. I got to tell, you know, I've got to tell my groom what he's supposed to do because he doesn't care. You know, I have to do all these things. You go through that that list. Now that's not the case with Christ, but there is the the three the the steps that take place to prepare the bride, to ready the bride. And so we want to look for a few moments. What does that mean for us? What is the preparation for the marriage? Well, first of all, it's the process of sanctification. Take your Bibles to Ephesians. I mentioned references a few moments ago, but we didn't turn there. Uh, I want to look at this now. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says in Ephesians chapter 5, and verse, we'll start in verse 26. No, we'll start in verse 25 so we get the context. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so 
that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The process of sanctification is the process that we're uh, uh, achieving now, and it's the process, the steps towards becoming more like Christ. Um, we talked a couple last Sunday in the morning service about growing. And we said, what, what is the idea of growing? It's, it's, it's making your practical life reflect your position in Christ. And that is what sanctification is. It's narrowing the gap between regeneration, the moment you were saved, and glorification, the moment we, we stand in the presence of God, perfect and without spot. It's, it's bridging that gap. It's shrinking that gap. And so it's, it's getting us closer to that. It's the process of sanctification. That is how the bride prepares. In the same way, you know, a bride will do all sorts of things to prepare for her wedding. Maybe she'll, you know, maybe she'll uh, get a haircut. Maybe she'll, uh, you know, make an appointment to have her nails done. Maybe, maybe she'll lose weight. Whatever the process is, it's a preparation. What is our proper pre- preparation? It's, it's becoming more like Christ. It's sanctifying ourselves while we're on earth. The second part of that is a transformation that happens at the rapture. Look, if you will, at Philippians. For sake of time, we're going to skip a couple of the verses I was going to look at. But Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Philippians 3 and verse 20, it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. We're waiting for the Savior. Who's the Savior? The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. God will transform us. Jesus will transform us. If you look at, you can write this reference down, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, it says, when we see Him, we will be like Him in, in the way that we uh, appear. And so that's the transformation that happens at the rapture. And then the, the last part there is the beautification uh, transformation as a result of the examination. Again, look at in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. And it says in chapter 19, verse 7, I read this a few moments ago, but it's talking, it says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. Give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Throughout Scripture, we understand the idea of cleanliness is, is clean, white uh, cloth. We see here that it says that when we're ready to be revealed to the world as Christ's bride, that we'll be clothed in fine linen, pure and, and bright. That is the idea there, the, the beautification transformation that happens after uh, we have been examined. And it talks about those, if you go on verse 8, it says, for those fine linens is the righteous deeds of the saints. Um, and, and so we, it's the beautification process. Um, due to time, I'm going to just kind of go through some of this a little quickly. I want to get to the very end here. But the revealing of the, mar- of the marriage, again, I said, is at the second coming, and uh, that's when Christ reveals us in, in, in splendor and in glory. The union of the bride 
Um, it takes place in two parts. It's interesting, and we could take a while to study this, but a, a, a wedding in the time of Christ, um, uh, in that time period, they followed um, some oriental wedding practices, and they would have done, there would be two parts to a wedding. Unlike today, we do it a little different today, but the first part would be in the home of the bride's father. Okay? The home of the bride's father, this parallels the presentation of the church as the bride to God in heaven. That's the first part. But then the second part is in the home of the groom. And as Christ being a man, okay, then uh, the scripture says that the earth is his home his dwelling place. And so there's that similar two parts to that. The last thing I want to look at here just for a moment, and uh, Alex, if you can switch it over, froze on me here, um, is the, the, one more, is the impact of the union. And this is where I want to just get into for the next few moments. Uh, what, what will that mean to us? Uh, first of all, you can flip to the next one. First of all, the scripture tells us that we will share Christ's name. Look at Revelation chapter 22 in verse 4. It says there, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Just as a bride, you know, when I, when I said, uh, when my wife and I, uh, we didn't do uh, traditional vows, we did our own, but when we, when we exchanged our vows um, and when I w- we were presented, you know, she no longer was Bethany Williams. She became Bethany Jones. She took my name. In the same way, we will share Christ's name. Um, that is an amazing thought, something we don't deserve. The second one there we see in that passage is that, um, move to the next one there, we will share Christ's glory. Look, if you will, at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Just a few more passages. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4. It says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ comes, as I said, and comes to earth as the uh, conquering king, we will come here with him. And we will share in his glory. The third one, we will enter into uh, rights of inheritance. If you will, just for a moment here, look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. It says in that passage, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellows heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Scripture tells us that we become heirs with Christ of God. Now, that's, that's uh, an amazing thought. So uh, not only do we uh, become the bride of Christ, we become the, become, uh, the full heirs of, of God. And, and we see that there in Scripture. And then the last one, uh, again, take your Bibles and look at Revelation. Last Scripture I want to look at just here briefly. Revelation chapter 22. Scripture tells us in Revelation 22 and verse 5, we said in verse 4, we receive his name. Verse 5, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. The Lord God will be their light, and they will reign 
forever and ever. Reference there is to us as believers, and it says we will reign with Christ. Um, Amazing thoughts, humbling thoughts, but uh, a glorious thought as well. So that is uh, a nutshell of the um, events of us as believers in heaven. Let's close in a word of prayer.